This is a Federal News Network podcast. Homeland Security set out in 2016 to replace its facial and fingerprint recognition systems, but little has gone right for the Homeland Advanced Recognition Technology, or HART, program. It's three years late, and no components are yet up and running. The Government Accountability Office says DHS officials need to get on with a lot of procurement best practices. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues, Kevin Walsh. Kevin, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. Good to be on. And tell us how this program is structured. They need to acquire these new technologies. Is this a single acquisition or is it a series of sub-components? So this is a series of contracts. And as you noted, the first contract has had a series of issues. They've breached their schedule twice. They've breached their cost once. And it just seems like this cavalcade of ongoing things going wrong. So since this is a 27-year-old program, we really want to get them on the right page back developing correctly and working well with their contractors so that we can fix this critical functionality and make sure that we get the next level of functionality which we want to use to support decisions made by national security, law enforcement, and immigration folks over there at DHS. And where does this all fit in there? Because, for example, TSA and Customs and Border Protection have both deployed facial recognition systems at ports of entry, at airports, and so on. But you're talking about something different And where does it fit in vis-a-vis those systems and also via the APHIS system of the FBI? So this is at the DHS level, and it's at the highest level. And as you noted, TSA, CBP, even FBI, they are partner agencies that work with DHS to coordinate on biometric identity management. So you noted in the intro that this one does fingerprints and facial recognition. Biometrics, though, in the future could also include things like DNA, iris recognition, even the way you walk or talk. So there's a lot more functionality that DHS wants to get that this 27-year-old system can't quite do. And what specifically are they buying? Because a system could refer to a series of sensors and fingerprint readers and iris readers, but it sounds like they're buying something comprehensive. Is it going to be contractor-operated? What are they driving at? So this program is Geez, it is mammoth in scope. So it's going to be a nine-year-long development effort, or will be by the time it's completed, according to the current tentative schedule. And it's going to cost $4 billion. So yeah, this is going to be fairly comprehensive. They want to use it to determine visa issuance, immigration eligibility, whether folks should get access to sensitive facilities or sensitive systems, law enforcement actions related to homeland security. So they really need to get this right. This is critical to the functioning of our government and those who deal with it. Yeah, and so it's three years late on initial deployment. And also your report states that the DHS's own IT dashboard says things have been okay with it. Yeah, this was really an interesting oversight. So the first scheduled breach that happened with this program was in June of 2017. They said it was due to contracting delays and bid protests. They revised their schedule, came out with a new one in May 2019, yay, and then eight months later breached it again in January 2020. And that's when things get interesting for what's on the dashboard because then the cost breach was four months after that in May 2020. But from November 2019 all the way through November 2020, if you looked on the dashboard, it said everything's green, everything's fine while all these big breaches were going on. So it was really a head scratcher when we saw that. Now, To DHS's credit, after November 2020, they flipped it down to red again. But what was going on in the background there was they were working through a new process. They had some big leadership changes. 
So they acknowledged that the ratings on the dashboard were inaccurate and outdated because of that new process, and it seems like they've got things straightened out so that it won't happen again. Yes, I smell a rebaselining coming here. We're speaking with Kevin Walsh, Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the GAO, and basically you're saying that they have not fulfilled a number of best practices that should go with these large and complex procurements. Just review those for us. Yeah, so in addition to looking at how they were doing historically and how they were reporting on it transparently through the dashboard, we looked at a series of best practices related to risk management, agreement management, project monitoring control, and requirements management. Now, for risk management, we identified seven key best practices, and to their credit, they were doing pretty good. They had fully implemented four of them and partially implemented three. The ones they didn't included documenting their risk meetings, which is, it's something we'd like to see. It's not going to run it off the rails. But they also didn't document when a risk transfers from a potential risk into you know, what's the trigger to now this is happening and we need to mediate and address it. On the acquisition best practices side of things, we had 14 best practices in and amongst agreement management and the others. They had fully addressed seven and partially addressed seven, so it's a little bit more mixed there. But still, this isn't quite program management off the rails. This is, hey, these are some things we really think you guys should do to make sure you're doing this correctly. So it's hopeful given you know how, how much of this was done, but given the history of the program, Tom, this is really still concerning. You know, this is $4 billion. It's three years past when we expected it to be delivered. So we're not saying everything's all right right now. Sure. And who are their prime contractors here? So we did not name that in the report, and I'm not prepared to get into that today. All right. Well, we'll find out one way or another, but they understood that it's not in the report. Uh, but I guess my question is, in looking at this, uh, how have the requirements management been? Because biometrics is a moving target, and the technology changes almost monthly with some new algorithm or some new way of seeing the crinkle in the corner of the eyes and so on. And has that been an issue, creeping and changing requirements? Absolutely. So if you recall, I mentioned that there were two schedule breaches and one cost breach. The first schedule breach, DHS said it was due to contracting delays and bid protests, and the eventual contract that they put in place has been modified 12 subsequent times, and the costs have increased by $143 million. So those 12 contract mods tell us that they really didn't do great setting their requirements up front. The second schedule breach was also due to technical challenge and disagreements with the contractor on the requirements. And the final cost breach was also due to changing requirements, and that increased the cost of the program by $400 million. So spot on, Tom. This is a lot due to understanding the requirements of the program and how they continue to change and evolve as the program takes longer and longer. Yeah, basically, these are all, well, the basics, you might say. And what does Homeland Security say in response to your latest report here? So we made a total of seven recommendations to DHS that they update their policy to reflect the issues that we identified in here. And to their credit, they concurred with everything. And they also provided estimated dates for implementing them. So they're owning this and they're working to address it. So that's a hopeful note to end on. Kevin Walsh is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Appreciate the time, Tom. Thank you. We'll post this interview together with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach 
at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. <laughs> Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision, that I have uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, 
Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the, 
Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.